Book Stew viewers and listeners. Today I have a return guest who I'm so excited to see. And uh, you're going to meet and hopefully meet again if you saw the first episode that Connie was in in July of 2016, Think Back, Think Back. And the first time I had her on, and we couldn't remember exactly how we had gotten to know each other but um, before the episode, but she wrote a beautiful uh, historical fiction book about one of the islands in Boston Harbor, and it was called The Island of Worthy Boys, and it was about boys who were delinquents in Boston and who were sent to this island to, to, uh, to be rehabilitated, and it was a wonderful story. And of course, being in Boston, we could you know, see, go out to the islands where the book was set. So that book actually won the gold medal for regional fiction in 2016 from the independent publisher. They awarded that to Connie. So, um, and, and I love the book. So then when I found out, maybe through social media or maybe Connie let me know that five years had passed or six years and there was gonna be another historical fiction book, I jumped at the chance to have her on the show again. So Connie, welcome back to Book Stew. I'm so happy to see you. Thanks so much, glad to be here. And it's also so wonderful to have a guest in the studio as opposed to Skype. <laughs> so the book we're gonna be talking about today is your new novel that actually uh, launches May 6th. May 6th. Which is National Nurses Day. Oh, and that is very appropriate because the book is called The Sharp Edge of Mercy and it's actually about a nurse at the first, or a nursing, nursing assistant, at the first cancer hospital that was ever established in the entire world. So Connie, why don't you give us some background? Well, let's hear first about why did you choose this path? Because your last book had nothing to do with medical anything. Right, <clears throat> so uh, I really wanted to write a book about uh, medical ethics, and I was sort of looking for a setting for this, and I heard an episode on a podcast called 99% Invisible, which is about uh, design and architecture, and the episode was about this building that you can actually see in the bottom, um, on the bottom of the cover, uh, which was the New York Cancer Hospital, and it was very innovative in an architectural way. It had these round turrets so that dirt couldn't gather in the corners and so forth, uh, but I thought, as I was listening to this, I thought, oh, this, is a, this would be a great uh, location. There must. It would be very fertile ground to discuss medical ethics. Uh, how you know, a cancer hospital at the turn of the century when cancer treatment was uh, very rudimentary. There was no radiation, no chemotherapy. So, um, so I, I immediately started researching uh, the hospital. And so, when you started researching it, did it? Were you aware immediately that it was going to be fertile ground for for a new? Uh, a new historical fiction? Yeah, I, I, it really uh, paid off in terms of, of offering, I think, a lot of um, complicated decisions um, that had to be made back then about how you treat people with advanced cancer and issues of consent and issues of palliative care. So, um, so it, was, uh, it was exactly what I was looking for. And you found it. So actually, I'm going to give a little bit of a spoiler, which is that uh, the New York cancer hospital, which it was only treated women initially, and it evolved eventually into Sloan Kettering, which is one of the best known cancer hospitals on the planet. So um, the building was very unusual looking, and um, why did they only treat women at the beginning? Well, there was a women's ward and a planned men's ward, and there was actually a chapel, I think, that, that connected them. 
and um, they had financial problems from the start. And so it's it's unclear whether the men's ward ever opened. Um, that was something I couldn't verify. But the women's ward opened first, and that's uh, that's the piece that I wrote about. And um, other than not having everything that's been developed since the 1890s, chemo, radiation, diagnostic equipment, um, all kinds of care and drugs that didn't exist at the time. What, if you were a woman, well, let's start with a wealthy woman. If you were a wealthy woman in New York City and you had a lump somewhere and you ignored it long enough and then somebody, either your doctor or someone said, you may have cancer. Let's so first of all, naming it the cancer hospital. Now that must have been a big deal because I know, and we've discussed um, in my parents' generation, that word was not said aloud because it was someone must have said, "Oh, if you say the word cancer, and it comes out of your mouth, it spreads," or it was just too horrible to even mention because it was inevitably a death sentence. Nobody recovered from cancer then, so. Um, if I was a wealthy woman with a lump and I, was, I went into the, the New York Hospital for Cancer, what would happen to me? Well, if you were wealthy, it was likely that you would get a surgeon to come and operate on your dining room table, if you can believe that, because people were very concerned about um, hospitals they really considered them uh, sort of death, death factories was the, the phrase that they would use. And um, before antibiotics, you can imagine that a lot of these surgeries that occurred ended in um, terrible infection. And sometimes, you know, the, the, I think that most of the fatalities that happened in the hospital were due to infection after the hospital, after the surgery. So many people chose to have surgery in their own homes, which is usually on their dining room table thinking maybe that that would be cleaner than a hospital, I don't really know. But if you did come to the hospital, and some people did, um, you would uh, probably be in a room that looked a lot like your parlor. So we were not talking about sort of cold metal surfaces and, and so forth, so that you could be very comfortable there. Um, and you would pay a lot more money for that room than somebody who would uh, not be able to afford that and would be down on a more traditional ward. So there was definitely uh, class differences between patients and they, encouraged wealthy people to come because that was how they that was how they sustained the hospital in addition to charitable donations right yes so then what would happen um, when so then you would the doctor would kind of feel around your lump they didn't have x-rays so they certainly didn't have MRI so basically what they the only course they had was operating Right, and they would, uh, I think they would go in, a lot of it was sort of exploratory, and um, I, I think that um, when you were a patient and you were about to undergo surgery, you didn't really know exactly what was going to happen to you. You know, if your problem was in your leg, you didn't know if you were going to have your leg when you, um, you know, when you woke up. And I don't think that um, doctors were especially concerned about talking to the patient about what they can expect from this. So I think they were just like, well, just, you know, wheel her in and we'll, we'll take care of her. We'll do whatever we have to do. So Were hospitals, this didn't come up in the book, but were hospitals regulated by anybody then? I don't think so. I mean, I, I didn't research that specifically, but I did not find that in my research. So, so there's these kind of uh, wild Bill Hickok surgeons yeah. just uh, opening people up. And then they open someone up. They take away what they think is the lump and maybe a surrounding organ if it's infected, or maybe they don't. 
and then they close uh, up, in this case it was the woman. And uh, in your book, there's kind of an amazing passage where the wearing of gloves is, or not, is discussed. How did, were you surprised to see that uh, surgeons were not wearing gloves? Um, I guess, in thinking that this is 130 years ago, I wasn't really surprised, but um, gloves were just being developed, but they were very thick. They're not like the gloves that we, you know, the latex gloves that we um, have today. So they didn't give the surgeons a lot of dexterity, and they were actually developed initially for nurses to protect them from all this caustic carbolic acid that they had to um, uh, put on their hands, and they actually sprayed it in the air, too, so it would get in your lungs. It was pretty awful. Um, so gloves were originally for nurses who didn't need as much dexterity because they were just handing instruments to, to surgeons, but surgeons were all barehanded back then. All right, well, speaking of nurses, and re a nurse is the main character in the book. Her name is Lillian, and she, um, in, that, in those times, I was really surprised to hear that nurses had to, while they were training, they had to live in dormitories because their moral character and reputation was very important. And the way that hospitals and, and trained nurses was to stick them in a dorm, make them live all together, keep an eye on that they weren't like going out at night or anything or doing anything they shouldn't do. Your character, Lillian, cannot live in that type of situation because she's caring for her sister who um, was, uh, went through a terrible bout of scarlet fever and was left blind and somewhat mentally challenged. So um, Lillian is going to apply for a position as a, a nurse's assistant, not a nurse, because she hasn't had the training. And she goes to the hospital because she finds out there's an opening. So why don't you pick it up from there? I'm going to ask you to read just a small section. Because the relationships between the nurses and the nurses' assistants and the nurses and the doctors is a very critical part of the story. Okay. So this is sort of, you can see at the beginning of the book, and um, Lillian has just been hired. She's being passed off uh, to somebody who's going to show her the ropes. Uh, let's see. Um, if Nurse Holt hired you, trust, I trust that you will be an improvement on those who came before you. This uh, hiring person looks down the hallway and, and called out, Nurse Weatherby. A plump woman several years older than Lillian turned around and headed their way, a tray of small china cups in her hands. Nurse Collins looked relieved at her arrival. Nurse Weatherby, meet Miss Dolan, our new nursing assistant. She will be shadowing you today. Please inform her of her responsibilities in detail. I'm sure you will remember them from the last one we had scurrying around here. Certainly, Nurse Collins, Nurse Weatherby's face was a mask of neutrality. Excellent, murmured Nurse Collins as she whisked away. Nurse Weatherby's face relaxed. You can call me Janie, but not in front of the others. Collins is supposed to be showing you the ropes today, but she can't stand the new ones. How old are you anyway? They started walking down the hall. 18. Hmm, hiring them younger and younger. Well, at least I'm not the youngest around here anymore. Have you been to the wards yet? I haven't been anywhere. All right, clean slate, here we go. Janie looked straight ahead as they walked, the tray perfectly level, the white cups as still as if they were glued down. All the patients are women. They've been working on the men's wing, but they don't quite have the coin to open it. A bit of a cash flow problem, so goes the chatter. We got the paying patients on the higher floor, swank rooms, champagne and carriage rides in the park, etc., etc. And then there are the ones that pay less, or not at all, on the lower flo floors. Lillian hesitated before she spoke. You wouldn't be pulling my leg about the champagne and the carriages, would you? That I am not. Did you think we were in the business of curing cancers? 
Well, I suppose the doctors would tell you so, and plenty have a chart marked cured when they leave. But who knows where they are in a year unless they come back to us? Lillian wondered what cured actually meant, but decided not to ask. Instead, she said, so the champagne and carriage rides are for the purpose of morale, and the champagne isn't bad for the pain either. They stopped in front of a door. But for the more serious pain relief, this tray of doses is more effective. Morphine, inquired Lillian. Only for the worst of it. Expensive, you know. Every pain is managed by the, um, everyday pain is managed by the considerable power of plain old whiskey. And with that, Janie opened the door to the ward. Lillian had been struck by the unusual architecture of the building from the outside. The, lound, the large round castle turrets like some strange mushrooms that sprouted among the rectilineal brownstones. But now she could see the purpose behind the design. Beds were arranged in the room like spokes of a wheel with a station for nurses at the center. Large windows admitted steams of su streams of sunlight in a way that would have been cheery had it not been for the presence of the patients in their various states of discomfort. By the time Lillian had taken it all in, Janie had already checked in at the central desk and was proceeding to the beds, and Lillian had to double step to catch up. Quite a room, eh? said Janie softly as they approached an emaciated woman lying rigid, her face damp with perspiration. Mrs. Mancini, looks like you could use a cup of comfort this morning, she said as she gently propped the woman up far enough to drink the whiskey. Has the doctor seen you yet today? The woman shook her head as Janie straightened the sheets. He'll be, in, he'll be by in a while. Janie patted the woman's veiny hand, deep valleys of skin between the knuckles. Around the room they went, doling out their cups with occasional editorial asides from Janie. That one never takes her whiskey. Her husband is a violent drunk and she won't have a drop to touch her lips as if she doesn't have a, a tough enough rough to hoe. One groaning woman with long flowing back black hair shot through with silver could not be woken for her dose. Not long now, whispered Janie, which gave Lillian a chill. Although what did she expect at a cancer hospital? Uh, so um, Lillian, our heroine, goes on to have really a an amazing experience and career at the hospital. And um, one of the first persons she meets is the person who runs the crematorium, who's um, a black man and um, actually becomes friendly with her and they live in the same neighborhood or close by and they bump into each other at the subway and um, his name is Jupiter, and he's concerned that they shouldn't be seen either inside or outside of the hospital walking and talking to each other. So, you know, the racism of the time was, was uh, caused uh, very, strict, very strict separation, even in a professional capacity. And um, that kind of leads, so Jupiter's presence at the hospital and how he's working there, even in the lowliest job as a, someone who cremates, the dead bodies is um, is interesting and uh, kind of he's a fictional character of course but he's kind of an offspring of a real person who was the founder of the hospital who was Dr. J. Marion Sims. Can you tell us a little bit about Dr. Sims? So um, some people may know th this uh, story which uh, really happened. Um, so uh, one of the founders of this hospital uh, was um, a doctor who decades earlier in Alabama had uh, perfected a particular type of surgery, which no one could figure out how to do, but he perfected this. 
Um, and he went on to become uh, called the uh, father of mo modern gynecology um, and was hailed and performed his, um, uh, uh, his surgery on many women. But the way that he perfected his surgery was uh, to uh, operate on uh, other people's slaves who had this condition that he was trying to cure. Um, but the worst part about that is that he uh, did this without giving these slaves any, any anesthesia. And so, uh, because there was some conventional wisdom back then that uh, black people did not feel pain to the same degree as white people. But this, but ether was available as an anesthesia, um, as an anesthetic uh, back then, and he chose not to use this. And he performed, um, I, th I think, over 30 surgeries on this one particular uh, uh, slave. Um, and, and it was extremely painful. Uh, and so when I found out that he was a founder of this hospital, I, I really needed to make sure that his story of what he did decades earlier was brought into the story. And I, as soon as, while I was reading the book, as soon as I came across his name, I was like, oh no, this is the doctor who had a statue. There was a statue um, maybe in Central Park or somewhere in New York City commemorating the father of modern gynecology. And the statue in 2018 was actually removed, was pulled down because of true understanding of what his history was. And there was controversy as there is in all statue takes down, takedowns. Do you leave them up so people can learn from it or do you just take them down? Because to me, a statue is an honor. You know, if you're, a, there are no statues to Hitler probably in Germany. I mean, you don't, just don't do it. So. I personally have no problem and I support taking down of statues that celebrate uh, people who uh, did something terrible. Now that's not to say he didn't do something good. I mean, he founded the, the hospital. He figured out how to do the surgery on fistulas, which are particularly horrible condition. But you know, this whole thing about just choosing not to use ether, and there's no excuse for that. Okay. So he was the founder of the hospital, and um, that's, so Jupiter um, actually has a specific reason for working in this hospital, and I'm gonna try to avoid spoilers about what he did, but you also, the book deals with um, both relationships between black people and white people in, in the book, both professional and romantic, and you also deal with what life was like for gay men and gay women because Lillian's, uh, the person who helps Lillian take care of her sister who can't be left alone is Josephine who's a lesbian and a former prostitute. And she also has, Lillian has a wonderful cousin who is being urged by his family to marry and um, is kind of headed in that direction when he's, re when he's gay and he really shouldn't be marrying anybody, any, anyone at the time anyway. How did you, um, how did those characters, since, since they're fictional along with Lillian, but you know, you knew there were nursing assistants back in those days, so, but um, cousin Matthew and Josephine are kind of very unique and fictional characters. How did you develop them? So, um, so the, the story overall with Lillian is that she comes, at the beginning of the book, 
she sees the world very much in, in black and white as she's young. Uh, and through uh, the experience of the book, which um, is when she gets this job, uh, but also other things going on in her life, you know, she comes, she has to reevaluate some of her, uh, the positions that she held. And she, her, her cousin um, is, uh, you know, he is uh, a hero to her. She, he's, he's sort of like a, a very close older brother type figure. <clears throat> and uh, as she sort of um, uh, uh, meets Josephine, um, and then uh, realizes more and more about Michael, she, uh, she has to reevaluate her, the positions that she held about uh, homosexuality. And so that's part, of, that's part of her growth. So even though that's not sort of in the theme of medical ethics, it has to do with, with Lillian needing to constantly reevaluate all these different positions that she held at the beginning of the story. Yeah, her growth is really, is really important and there are She's lucky enough to have some really fine teachers, um, like some of the nurses and like Josephine and like um, her cousin along the way, and Jupiter, who really um, helped to knock down her prejudices and make her uh, a more complete person. How did you, but her work on the ward is very, um, really is the center of the book and there's um, she encounters the different patients who are all women, and she's very compassionate, but she's also very observant. The other nurses, most of the other nurses, like um, the passage you read, um, the nurse Janie says, well, you know, she's not going to be around much more anyway. Um, there doesn't seem to be much that can be done for these women, and then there's no follow-up after there's no aftercare, they're just released and goodbye, and we hope we never see you again. What was your your per, like? How did you make Janie Janie uh, not Janie um, Lillian wants more. She wants to know more. She's very curious. She wants to learn. The most of the other nurses just seem to be um, perfunctory people with with careers, and 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 she uh, Lillian really feels everything for her patients. How did, how did you develop that aspect of her character? Um, well, I think that um, she, she comes in as the lowest man on the totem pole. Uh, she is um, very bright uh, and is anxious to learn. And so when she uh, attracts the attention of, uh, of the, the top surgeon in the hospital, this is, this is very um, validating for her, that he starts validating her intelligence and her curiosity, which is not something that any of the other nurses are really doing while she's cleaning bedpans and rolling bandages. And so um, this, uh, she enters this relationship which she doesn't really understand, and she thinks that this doctor is uh, really just interested because she's just so smart and everything, but of course it sort of turns in a slightly different direction. And that's also part of Lillian trying to, growing and understanding that the world is more complicated than she thought that it was. So and Lillian being a, a very multifaceted character and the center of the book, can, can you even put into words how Lillian developed and how you decided to make her the center of the book? Um, because were you using her to kind of get to other aspects like um, her cousin who was gay and Jupiter who was black? Or were you trying to focus more on the, on the 
the duties and what went on in a hospital, or both? So it really started out about the hospital, about her tasks, and about the, the issues that she is conf will confront in a medical setting. And that's all it was really supposed to be in the beginning. And then um, when I started uh, bringing, writing these scenes and, and sort of mapping out um, uh, the character of Dr. Bauer, the, the um, sort of hashtag Me Too theme just grew and grew. And of course, this is influenced by current events as I'm writing this. So I started writing this book in 2017. And late, in late 2017 was when the whole Harvey Weinstein thing happened and the hashtag was coined. And then I was continuing to write this because I'm a slow writer. And, um, and I was writing, sort of at the peak of writing uh, that relationship during the Kavanaugh hearings. And so mm -hmm. all of these current events were just forcing this book to be what I, I consider it to be sort of equally themed in both sort of issues of medical ethics and the Me Too theme. And it was, that was not the original plan, but this sort of, you know, things just forced me. The Brooks, book sort of wrote itself in this way. And then the other components about Jupiter and about uh, Michael and Josephine also just sort of crept in there. So if you look at this book as it's written now, there's all these different, what you might call these sort of, you know, progressive issues or whatever, but that was not, that was not the original plan. That these, these things sort of bloomed as I was writing this. Did, um, so were you finished? By the time COVID started, or where, like, what did this is? So this is set in 1890, and you don't have to deal with COVID. But I've been speaking to authors about this COVID dilemma. So you're writing. I mean, of course, this is historical fiction, but there's still elements of fiction in it. How do you, if it's current, how do you deal with COVID? If you set it before COVID, okay, but then that limits you. You can't set it after 2019, unless, un, and then unless you start dealing with masks and and infections and diseases, and it's just kind of this monumental boulder in the middle of the road for writers where they have to either climb the boulder or they have to go around it. Right. What so, impact did COVID have for you while you were right. writing it? So luckily, since this uh, story is set in 1890, I didn't have to deal with COVID in the story. Uh, but the, um, a, uh, my agent was, uh, had started to try to find a home at a publisher um, for the book before COVID, but then during this time, which was a long process, she was also trying, you know, the, the, the pandemic started while she was trying to sell this book to a publisher. And uh, publishing sort of just shut down initially and in, in sort of, you know, the middle of, of uh, 2020. And so you would not hear from people because people were trying to figure out, you know, agents or sorry, um, editors were trying to figure out their home office or, you know, trying to, you know, just figure out their life as we all were. Um, and so there was a big slowdown in everything in publishing, according to my agent, uh, at that time. And so it just took longer. And then I signed the contract, um, still sort of, I guess, signed the contract uh, 15 months ago. It was, um, uh, yeah, it was that January. So right in the middle of the pandemic. And so uh, everything, of course, was, was uh, remote and Zoom and, and um, uh, we made it work as everybody did. Uh, but it was yet a, just another thing that you know we had to um, we had to figure out. But it definitely slowed the process down. I guess is the short answer. I guess also I was thinking about it while I was reading it about the burnout of nurses during COVID and doctors, but especially nurses who just seemed to, as usual, bear the brunt of it. And I was thinking about um, how the nurses in this hospital were heroic because of all the, the, I mean, 
seeing untreatable death is very different than seeing, you know, I assume than being, you know, a nurse on a cancer ward where people are getting treatment, recovering, whatever. So um, I think you, you can, you, in the, the book really does recognize the heroic nature of, of nursing. And I think it's a, it's a great tribute to nurses. And I think anyone who's interested in medical ethics, the profession, and even the aftermath of COVID and burnout, and you know, some, a nice romance, which I don't wanna give away, but um, slipped in there at a great spot. So um, our time's up. So I want to, again, books to viewers and listeners, recommend to you The Sharp Edge of Mercy, which is a historical novel about the first cancer hospital in the United States and in New York, and a lot of interesting background, and I'm sure research went into it. So Connie, congratulations on your launch date in about two or three weeks, and uh, best of luck for great success with the book. Thanks so much. Thanks. So Bookstu viewers and listeners, my uh, next guest is going to be another returning guest, unfortunately by Skype, not in person, Lisa Cross-Smith, who uh, I had on I think a year and a half ago and has written a new novel called Half-Blown Rose. So uh, this episode will air May 1st and the Lisa episode will be June 1st and I hope you enjoyed. Um, listening to Connie and me today, and we'll see you soon. Have a good night.